Kate, hello. Hi, Daniel. How How's it going? Uh, you know, uh, not, not, not great in the grand scheme of things. I mean, I'm personally okay, but uh, lots of other things are not. Yeah, it's, um, it's, you know, it's great to see so many people out in the streets, I think, and, and fighting back. But the level of police brutality and violence right now, um, recording on a Tuesday, uh, June 2nd, yesterday, you know, Donald Trump invoking the Insurrection Act, uh, clearing out peaceful protesters to walk out of the White House with a Bible in front of a of a church. I mean, the all the sort of abstract talk about fascism in the USA just feeling more and more like a exact description of what's happening right now. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we've seen uh, just massive curfew orders. Uh, I think, you know, folks are probably familiar, but um, just to summarize very briefly, there is a lot of, uh, a lot of police uh, power being expended uh, to protect police impunity um, to kill black people. That's just seems like the situation right now. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. So yeah, so this is um, hot and bothered. Welcome. We're a podcast on climate politics in the time of coronavirus. And who knows, we maybe we'll be updating that, that tagline in a minute. Uh, we're hosted by Descent Magazine. Our producer is Colin Kinnebra. Um, and this week we're talking to Mijin Cha, a professor at Occidental College who's done some amazing research on climate and environmental justice, proposals for a just transition, how to transition to a low-carbon economy in a way that protects workers and communities. We had planned this interview before the killing of George Floyd and the subsequent protest and uprising and police pushback. Uh, but now it does seem like a really good time to think about the kinds of investments that we need to make, the kinds of green jobs programs that we would need, and also uh, to think about how we need to change the way that we talk and think about the Green New Deal in order to meet this moment. And Mijin is a perfect person to talk to about all of these things. Yeah, we'll link to some of this in the show notes, and it comes up uh, quite a bit in our conversation uh, here. But I think, you know, there have been uh, activists and thinkers and organizers with the Movement for Black Lives who have really done a lot of thinking about uh, kind of invest-divest framework, which includes in the Movement for Black Lives policy platform um, a specific piece around around fossil fuels. But I, I think, you know, there is really a lot to be to be said about um, which communities get invested in. And I think as we explore with Mijin in, in this interview, um, that is a much broader conversation, I think, than, than is often had in the kind of climate world where we can, you know, get a little bit siloed in, in terms of, you know, thinking about um, uh, thinking about investment and, and really, you know, I think right now is a, is a, is a need to think a lot broader about, about what, all you know we need to be fighting for yeah that's right and let me just make note of you know some of these kind of converging crises of course um george floyd was black and he was murdered by police and we have ample data finding that uh people of color and and black people specifically are murdered uh, by the police killed by the police at highly disproportionate uh rates and of course Black people are also um, the most affected by climate change, uh, far more likely than anyone else to live in close proximity to fossil fuel 
installation. Um, 70% of Black Americans live within 30 miles of a power plant. Uh, we know that Black Americans are subjected to the highest levels of air pollution and that air pollution is a morbidity for COVID-19. It increases the odds of dying from COVID-19. Um, and if we talk about the green economy, we find all throughout the energy sector and the clean energy sector, uh, underrepresentation of Black Americans who historically face uh, higher levels of unemployment uh, overall, in addition to in the clean economy. And it's something I you know, often bring up because it's such a stunning statistic. In the part of the country that I live in, the Mid-Atlantic, half of Black Americans can't afford their energy bills. Um, now, none of that is to say that we are primarily, you know, thinking about this uh, violence against Black people right now, you know, just in terms of climate change, but um, noting that there is a whole series of um, structures of inequality and of white supremacy, and uh, Black people are bearing the brunt of that in the United States right now. And I think that's something that really needs to, to be at the core of our climate politics going forward. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think um, it's a really good time to listen uh, for for folks in the in the climate movement, um, and yeah, to to really think seriously about um, some of the, the policy recommendations that are have come out, you know, for the last couple of years from um, folks who have been working on a on an abolition agenda uh, around policing and prisons, um, and to to really think seriously about. Um, what those intersections are and how to how to really build that in in a in a systematic way that I think I think can honestly get a little bit lost and you know there's a lot of talk about sort of disparities and impacts of climate change but um, I think there's a another level of work in terms of really deeply integrating that into a policy conversation. There is a great report out Freedom to Thrive: Reimagining Safety and Security in Our Communities, which we'll link to, um, put out by the Center for Popular Democracy, Law for Black Lives, and the Black Youth Project 100, um, BYP 100, this report goes through and looks at a number of municipal budgets and how much of the percent of total expenditures go to police department. And you look at cities like Atlanta, Baltimore, Chicago, Detroit, uh, Houston, LA, uh, Minneapolis, Oakland, Orlando, all upwards of 25, most around one third of their municipal budget going to you know, police departments. And you know, we have a call that we're seeing constantly now on social media and, and in the streets to defund police. Um, but that's not a call we've heard so much from the climate movement in the last few years. And certainly, you know, I myself as a uh, member of the Green New Deal movement have not been calling, you know, every day and every week for, for defunding police. And I think, at least for me, this is a real moment of reflection on was this agenda that I've been promoting as such an intersectional agenda really anywhere near intersectional enough? Yeah, and just to add, I think it's also uh, time to think think about historical um, analogies in some sense. I mean, just just briefly. I mean, I, I I think the Green New Deal is a really exciting frame, and I also think you know we shouldn't limit ourselves to the New Deal as a as our historical reference point. I mean, um, I think in some ways, you know, we live both in the in the world built by the backlash against the New Deal as much as we live in the world built by the backlash against Reconstruction. Uh, and and this, you know, period of really trying to figure out what it means to have a multiracial democracy in the United States that was violently uh, snuffed out, right? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I would say, you know, my thinking also, um, I think leaping forward in time 
to thinking about the war on poverty as the last kind of gasp of the sort of New Deal era. And I think it would be helpful and something that I want to read more about is to really understand how that um, failed, how the war on poverty failed, and to make sure that we're not accidentally repeating those mistakes as we kind of try to think very quickly, okay, you know, there's all this um, unrest, you know, there's all this violence. We need to, you know, attack poverty and look at this. We actually have these historical examples and those, those did not really work. Um, so that again, is I think something we barely ever talk about in the climate conversation, um, the years of the war on poverty. And I think probably understanding those failures would also be helpful to thinking clearly about where we are right now. Yeah. We also just have a couple very quick reminders before we get into this interview. Uh, the first is that we are counting on listener support to make this podcast possible. So um, if you have a few bucks to spare left over from what we hope would be your donations to bail funds and black led organizing, um, you can head over to patreon.com slash hot bothered climate to sign up to support our show again, alongside uh, donations to get folks out of jail who are protesting. Yes, absolutely. Please do give generously to bail funds. Um, super important right now. Um, we also have a happy hour coming up next week on June 9th at 6 PM for all of our patrons. So if you've signed up to support the production of the podcast, then please come join us uh, for this happy hour where no doubt we will be reflecting on the way forward for the Green New Deal movement um, and the need to you know, really meet this moment and listen and reflect uh, on our struggles in common. And it'd be really great uh, if you could help us spread the word about the show. You can rate or review us on iTunes or your podcast platform of choice and get in touch. We'd love to hear your feedback, suggestions for guests, and you can tweet at us using the hashtag hot bothered climate or email us at hot.bothered.climate at gmail.com. So without further ado, let's get into our conversation with Mijin Cha covering a number of these topics as well. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Urban and Environmental Policy at Occidental College. She is a fellow at Cornell University's Worker Institute, a senior fellow at Data for Progress, and she's a board member at the Center on Race, Poverty, and the Environment uh, and of Good for Girls and of Welcome Ideas. And I'll note quickly that Mijin was a co-author along with me and nine other uh, policy thinkers of a letter to members of Congress advocating a green stimulus, um, which we'll link to in the show notes as well. One uh, quick note about California. California has done a ton of great stuff on climate, and that story is pretty well known. So it was nice to get an alternative, uh, more critical take from Mijin to provide some balance to that overall narrative. Mijin, welcome to Hot and Bothered. Thanks for having me. So um, just to maybe kick us off, where, where are you um, currently uh, recording from? And are you and your people safe right now? It's really terrifying out there. It is for many reasons. Uh, I'm currently in outside of Sacramento, California uh, with my folks. I've been here since March. Um and everybody is safe uh, and as well as can be expected. I hope you all are safe as well. Thank you. 
Yeah, I, I am safe, um, but it is really terrifying out there, and a lot of people are not. Um, so I think we want to, um, you know, we had initially had the idea of having this conversation really focused on your work on on the just transition and, and climate justice uh, organizing. Um, and obviously, we need to respond to what's happening um, right now. Um, you've done a ton of work on issues of justice um, in communities in particular that have suffered disinvestment from New York to California to Wyoming often communities that are uh, losing jobs or that are in fossil fuel sectors um, with jobs that, you know, won't last if we make this green transition. So I, you know, I'm curious from the perspective of all that work that you've done, um, how are you thinking about the last week's kind of uprising and all of this police violence? Um, you know, I think it's one, just horrible. I think that we are seeing just mass state sanctioned violence. Um, and, uh, something that keeps sticking with me is, you know, the LA city budget is I think being voted on today and 54% of the budget is going to the police. So you think about the crises that are facing are, you know, what we call frontline communities. So communities of color, low-income communities, first it was environmental racism, you know, climate injustice, then it was the COVID crisis and that, and overlaying all of that, right. Has been just decades and decades of police violence. Um, so for me, I think they're all intertwined. Um, and I think now is really a moment where the climate movement really needs to step up and recognize that there is no climate justice without racial justice. And that it's not that these issues are separate. They are so intertwined. And until we start really looking at the root of these issues and addressing the root, they're just going to keep continuing. I mean, I think one is decades of economic disinvestment, right? So a lot of these communities, they don't have access to good jobs, let alone climate jobs. Um, and I think one thing that we could do is start thinking about our spending priorities. So a meaningful shift would be you take money from the police budget and you actually give it to communities of color and low-income communities, not just you know this like generic invest in frontline communities, but you actually create jobs, you invest in new businesses and new sectors in these communities, and you make it the symbolic gesture of you're taking it from the police budget and you're giving it to these communities. Yeah, I mean, to, to follow up on that, I mean, I think there are a lot of folks in the climate movement and sort of coalesced around the Green New Deal in particular who have um, for years and, and you know, largely, um, I think, as a response to calls from climate and environmental justice organizers um, have been calling for targeted investments in communities of color and working class communities, um, you know, for, for as long as certainly the, the Green New Deal has been a demand and, and a bit longer. And I think, you know, that's been a strength is really listening to demands that have been coming um, from folks who live near pollution, who are on the front lines of climate change. But even even within that conversation, um, I at least have not heard as much talk about the police in particular in the criminal justice system and how that specifically ties into into this. Um, so, you know, when you look at the the Green New Deal agenda, which is obviously this broad thing defined in many different ways, um, you know, what of that do you think remains really on point? Kind of what is is speaking really well um, to this moment? And, you know, you, start, you started to get into this um, in the last question, but, you know, what's what's missing or what could be added um, to, to really kind of meet the uh, the demands of, you know, this moment, which obviously isn't isn't new in, in its causes. Mm -hmm. You know, part of the, I think, benefit of the Green New Deal as it is now is that it's really more of a framework, right? So 
Representative Ocasio-Cortez talks about how there are kind of just three principles, one, decarbonization, two, protecting frontline communities, and three, protecting workers, right? So I think in that sense, you know, when we talk about protecting frontline communities, it is really what does that mean? Um, And I think what's going around now, I think, is a lot of performative allyship. So it's like, oh, we all need anti-racist training and all this, 100%. But I and what's missing in a lot of these conversations is like, what do communities need, right? Like we keep talking about targeted investments, um, but what does that look like and what does that mean? Um, you know, in California, a portion of the cap and trade funds are supposed to go, I think it's 35% to what they consider to be frontline communities. But you see even there, the devil is in the details. So is it direct spending or is it these this like generic, you know, funding towards projects that benefit communities of color and low-income communities? Well, you know, that's like when you do some kind of offset, you're saying that that will help these communities because there will be some overall pollution reduction. Um, Those are not the kind of policies that we need. So when I think about what a Green New Deal could do, um, I really think when we talk about centering frontline communities, we really center frontline communities. So there is this engagement process that needs to happen where it is about what do they need um, and then doing that versus like, what do we think they need, which I think is a difficult balance, but I think one that, especially now in this time, is so needed. Yeah. Um, let's stick with with California for a minute. In a recent paper called Environmental Justice, Just Transition, and a Low-Carbon Future for California, you and your co-authors wrote, marginalized communities bear a disproportionate amount of the environmental and economic costs of the extractive economy while receiving very few of the associated benefits. Because of this climate gap, already burdened communities, often low-income and communities of color, will suffer the most adverse consequences from the impacts of climate change for several structural and institutional reasons, including a lack of resources available to deal with the financial, social, and environmental impacts of climate change. And I guess, you know, one was to me interesting reading that is the description of climate injustice is so similar to just a description of like institutional racism. And that although a lot of it has to do with the experience of pollution, a lot of it is just about basically economic inequality, like communities' own lack of control over their political economy. So I, I guess, like, how, how much do you see the situation as being really around economic and institutional um, sort of factors? And how much do you think we need to bring something like policing in if we want to have a full understanding of the concept, of the like overlap between racial injustice, structural racism, and uh, climate injustice? Um, I think we could think of the police as a manifestation of these structural injustices, right? The current policing state we have is a manifestation of racist structures and economic inequality, right? Um, And I just want to mention that the climate gap was really developed by Manuel Pastor and Pierre at USC. Um, And it basically says that, you know, the people that contribute the least to climate change suffer the most impacts from it and have the least resources to deal with impacts that will come from climate change. And I think that, I guess you could call it dynamic, is replicated in other issue areas, right? So we could think of opportunity, right? So the people who have the least amount of opportunity bear the burden of not having access to economic security and social safety nets and all that. And they have the least amount of resources to deal with it. So I can see how, you know, there's this idea that, well, like the police are a different thing. And like, if we start to advocate for police reform as part of climate reform, then it becomes this whole thing that like, nobody really knows what what it's like. It's like when you go to those protests and you think it's about one thing, but then suddenly it's about something else. But I think 
fundamentally, they all come from the same structural injustices. And until we root out those structural injustices, we'll just keep seeing manifestations of it in different ways. Yeah, and just to, I mean, to follow up, because you mentioned um, the LA budget, in, in California specifically, it seems like the there's a, a funding conversation around um, around investment in environmental and climate justice that seems so orbited around this um, the the mechanism from the cap and trade program, um, and then there's almost this wall between sort of these larger budget considerations. So I'm, I'm wondering kind of how you think about that. I know that's a, a pretty broad question, but just that it seems like there's this sort of narrow nexus of what gets considered as being available for climate environmental justice work versus, you know, the sort of broader question of how resources are allocated in the in the public sphere. For sure. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of the EJ groups in California really were against cap and trade. And I think one of the reasons is because it becomes this like, well, we don't have to allocate money for X because they have cap and trade revenue. But, you know, as part of our report that we did that produced that paper that Daniel mentioned, you know, we tried to trace where the cap and trade money went, like what programs are being funded, you know, how many jobs are being created, for instance, like what is the pollution reduction in these communities? And like, it was almost impossible to trace that money. And whenever you try to think of anything else, like, okay, we should tax, for instance, oil and gas permits because like they just abandon these wells, they don't pay for the reclamation bond or whatever, and then everything, you know, anytime you kind of come up with that revenue or like a, another revenue source, the answer is always like, well, we have cap and trade. And I think this is the, you know, the downfall and like fundamental wrong of me- market-based mechanisms is that you, it, it's not just that we have this one pool of money, right? Like to your earlier point, like there's no reason actually that there should be any unhoused people in Los Angeles because there's so much money. They even We even passed this like bond measure that I think has a dedicated funding stream to address these issues. And yet we have record numbers of people who are without houses. So to me, that means one, a total misallocation of funding, which given Mary Garcetti, I'm not surprised. And two, that it's not working, right? Like whatever you think they think is the problem is not actually the problem. And, you know, we all know what the, what is causing these issues, right? Stagnant wages, housing prices that are too high. Like most people who are not housed have jobs, right? They just can't afford to live. So I feel like these funding questions is just, there's never, and I think we could see this also in the post-COVID response. We don't have a shortage of money. We just have a shortage of priorities, right? Like these bills that are getting passed that aren't really doing that much for working people are in the trillions of dollars. Like, you know, back in the day when you asked for $10 million, it was like, oh my God, we can't, that, there's no way we can afford that. Are you crazy? And now it's like, yeah, we think like 3 trillion is good. You know, and it's just like, wait, what? So I feel like, there's so much money being generated from tax revenue, and yet none of it is really helping people's lives be markedly improved, and it's not really doing anything to help this climate crisis. So I just, I mean, then that that graph where you see that 54% of the city's budget is going to policing, it's like, yeah, of course. Like, we decided not to invest in safety net measures, so instead we're just going to police people to death. I just, like, and that translates into... We don't really need to put money into communities of color or low-income communities to help them adapt to climate change or to help them with mitigation measures because we have cap-and-trade money. But then the question is, where does that cap-and-trade money go, A, and B? It's still not enough. So I just think that like, when you have this market-based mechanism like cap-and-trade, it just stifles any kind of meaningful action on climate, and it makes people feel better because they think that there is something that's happening. One thing that I think will be helpful for our listeners who aren't based in California could you just explain in kind of 101 terms, like 
what is California's kind of cap and trade program and how is it that most of the funding for you know climate justice comes out of this sort of market mechanism approach to dealing with pollution? Sure. So, you know, there are several cap and trade programs. There's one in the Northeast. Um, there's obviously one in Europe. And the idea of cap and trade is that you cap greenhouse gas emissions. So let's say this is these are not the numbers, but just for simplicity's sake at like 100 metric tons. So then if you if you yourself for these greenhouse gas emissions, you need a permit to release them. Right. And then those permits are auctioned off and that's how revenue is raised. So basically, um, you know, a lot of EJ folks see it as like you're you're paying to pollute. So it's so the idea of being people say cap and trade is that you would eventually reduce your emissions because you don't want to be one, the cap should be decreasing. So there shouldn't be that many permits that are auctionable. And two, it will be financially beneficial for you to not pollute because then you wouldn't have to buy these permits to pollute. But what we find in practice is that one, loads of sectors are exempted, right? So ag, for instance, in California, ag is a huge climate polluter. Um, exempted from cap and trade. So they can just pollute. They don't need permits to pollute. The second is that it's supposed to, the idea is that then you generate revenue that can help invest, that will then be invested in projects that further reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And California has a designation where I think it's 35% of those funds need to go towards disadvantaged communities. Um, you know, if it's directed directly invested in those communities, it's good, of course, but Often there are these mechanisms that allow them to be like, well, actually, just the benefits have to apply to frontline communities, which means that you could build something in Northern California that technically reduces pollution overall in the state. And then that could be deemed as a, a way to benefit a, commu a frontline community in Southern California. I mean, to be frank, that's like bullshit, right? Like, you, what does that mean that you, it's not really benefiting anybody except for corporations? Um, and also... You know, I, I just think from a basic economic standpoint, that means that your revenue source to deal with these problems by nature must decrease if you want to solve the problem. So ideally, if cap and trade works the way that we want it to work, the cap would be so low that there would be no permits to auction off, right? Then you're not raising any revenue. But the climate crisis is still continuing and frontline communities are still being disinvested. And so where does that money come from? To me, it's a way to make it seem like you're doing something on climate but it's, you know, these market-based mechanisms, they're never as ambitious as they need to be. Um, you know, I think that there are also things like offsets. So you don't actually reduce emissions again in state, but you reduce them somewhere else. So I think we found that like one project in Arkansas where they planted a bunch of trees uh, provided like 50% of the offsets, offsets um, in California. So that's great for folks in Arkansas that have cleaner air, but like what about in the Central Valley? Yeah, just to, I mean, underline the point you, you just made, which I feel like does not get said nearly enough about, about the cap and trade program is that like it really does tie these like critical investments to uh, pollution in, in, in some way. I mean, the um, figures from, from the most recent auction of, of um, allowances, I think the, they only brought in I think twenty five million dollars for the for the quarter, exactly. as opposed to the six hundred to eight hundred million, um, because it, you know, in, in large part because uh, fossil fuel demand had collapsed, which is such a sort of I don't know, just sort of a wild thing to consider that as emissions, you know, go down, the causes of emissions go down, that the revenue for a transition also dries up. Exactly. I mean, to me, it makes no, I mean, I'm not an economist, but it makes zero sense because now 
you know, to the earlier point, like since cap and trade has sucked out all the revenue discussion in the room, that's all the revenue that there is really to work on or to invest in climate projects. But, you know, to your point, this quarter that there wasn't that much oil and gas demand did not actually solve the climate crisis. So we actually need that 600, 800, it should be much more actually. But it's to me, it makes absolutely no sense. I feel the same way about a carbon tax. Like, I just don't understand why people think that these market-based mechanisms are a good idea. I mean, I know why they think that, but I don't agree, I should say. But yeah, I think that they're wrong. Yeah, I mean, just a couple, you know, quick notes on California. You know, it seem, I've seen research suggesting that in sort of physical pollution has actually increased in frontline communities. Yeah. Um, and it's bizarre because then at the very same time as all these problems we're talking about, I think in some ways the idea of targeted investment in frontline communities, which is at the center of the Green New Deal, does come out of this California experience and is sort of held up as a model. Um, and I, you know, it's, it seems there's so many contradictions. It doesn't seem wrong exactly to take away some of the better parts of it, but maybe from California's perspective, um, the whole thing just has to be rejected. I don't know how you, how you see it. I mean, I think targeted investments, it's always the same thing about the devil is in the details. So for instance, in the Central Valley, in Kern County, right, it's a huge oil and gas drilling and um, they have some of the worst air in the country and it's a largely farm worker community. Like all of these injustices are happening. So putting like a billion dollars in the Central Valley, I think is a great idea to help them transition off. You know, we also found in our report that while oil and gas drilling is, you know, really concentrated in Kern County and areas like that, renewable energy development is not being developed in the same regions, right? So it's not that we're re replacing fossil fuel jobs with clean energy jobs. I mean, we shouldn't have that framing in the first place, but even in actuality, it's not happening. So I think a billion dollars in Kern County is a great idea, um, directly invested in Kern County into sectors that will be there for the long run that are also low carbon, that help raise the standards, both in terms of jobs and also living standards, and also then reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Like if you gave Kern County a billion dollars, they could actually afford to stop, you know, drilling oil and gas because that's their main revenue source, right? Yeah, just to, I mean, to zoom out a little bit from there. Um, I mean, the the other kind of context in, in what's what's been going on kind of last week is that, in, and, you know, the coronavirus crisis on top of that is, is that we're also entering into this, um, what could be a very, very deep, recession, if not a depression, uh, and, and unemployment is just, you know, going through the roof. I mean, to levels not seen since, since the great depression. Um, and you know, there, there's been a lot of, of talk in the sort of green jobs conversation about, um, you know, what to, what to do about employment. And I think there, there's this sort of image of, of those jobs being, you know, installing solar panels of, of, you know, hoisting up wind turbines and things like that. Um, but also a lot of that work, you know, is not, is not well paid, is not necessarily unionized. Um, and, you know, you've written about the importance of, of specifically kind of high road jobs of, of, of making, um, making sure that, that green jobs are good jobs. So I'm wondering if you could, um, say a little bit more about, you know, as we're, we're sort of facing the many of these crises sort of coming to a head, um, what a what a good green job looks like, and you know how does uh, what what does the process look like for generating those um, in in communities of color in particular that um, are are being worst hit by you know 
all of these crises that are um, sort of coming to a head now. And and what does you know California kind of teach us about about some of the lessons for how to do that, both you know in the in the positive and the negative? That's a really great question, and I feel like what we don't even understand the scope of how bad it will be. Um, I think one challenge really will be that you know in a lot of these communities, their main tax revenue source is either drilling or some of you know coal-fired power plant, natural gas-fired power plant. And then at a time when state and local budgets are being decimated and there's you know probably record unemployment is coming, it's really hard to say you should shut that down without giving some kind of alternative, right? So this is why we focus so much on job quality, because we have seen the stagnation of wages, um, rising inequality. And, you know, the, the thing about fossil fuel jobs is that, one, the unionization rate is higher than other sectors. And two, they they still are, for the most part, really well-paying jobs. And um, the kind of the last job that you could get that would be family sustaining, provide benefits, um, and you didn't need to have a you know college education or some kind of four-year degree. Um, and then we see this proliferation of really what I would call low quality jobs, particularly in the solar industry, where maybe they pay more than minimum wage in some states, but they're not good quality jobs, right? With, what I mean by that is that they don't pay a living wage, they don't have benefits, and there's no career ladder. So for instance, it's much better to train as an electrician um, that does solar installation than to train as a solar installer. If you train as a solar installer, you know all you're really trained to do is install solar. But if you're trained as an electrician, you can both install solar and also be an electrician. Um, and I think it's really important that we think about this as we talk about climate jobs and the need to you know, create millions and millions of climate jobs. I think if we look back to the last recession, um, you know, there was this promise of it being the green jobs economy recovery. And those jobs, by and large, did not materialize. And I think that caused a lot of distrust amongst both workers and unions about this promise of green jobs. Um, and you know when we talk when you talk to folks about transition, the question is always transition into what. And I think we have not really shown, to be honest, that we can transition people who have lost their jobs into jobs that are of the same quality that provide benefits, family sustaining wages, and a career pathway. Um, and so when we think about as we think about investing into in the post coronavirus era, I think one thing about climate jobs is that, you know, it's not just solar and wind installation, which get the most attention, but, you know, energy efficiency, for instance, is something that could be done everywhere, right? Every building could be more efficient. There are buildings everywhere. Um, LA has this mandate to electrify all buildings by 2030, I think. I think that also will generate a huge amount of work, right? That means that all these systems have to be replaced. Um, and then you could think about extending that to residential housing. So I just, one of the things about climate jobs, I think, is that they are everywhere, um, it's not just solar and wind installation. It's whatever we can do to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and so I think, you know, there's a lot of talk about like coal miners will become solar installers. Well, no, that's ridiculous because the skill set is so different. But also if, when a coal miner, you know, loses their job or is displaced, they should be able to do whatever they want to do. So if they want to retrain as a teacher, they should retrain as a teacher. Um, one thing that I think we could learn from California is that as far as we could tell, there is no dedicated transition funding stream. So if we compare it to the Washington state carbon tax proposal, for instance, which again, you know how I feel about carbon taxes, but they had a dedicated funding stream for transition. And I think particularly in a post-COVID world, we need dedicated funding to transition folks off of fossil fuels, right? So in addition to whatever supports come from helping state and local you know, economies recover, there has to be dedicated funding to help these fossil fuel regions transition away from fossil fuels. 
Um, I think as much as we can do it through the public sector is another way to kind of ensure good quality jobs. Uh, when you do work through the public sector, it's much easier to put standards on like prevailing wage or you know requiring pre-approved apprenticeship programs or project labor agreements. Um, and all of these things that we're talking about, you know, the private sector just sees them as costs um, when we all know that they're actually benefits. So the mo- as much as the private sector, the public sector can drive the recovery, I think the higher the possibility that we'll have good jobs that are being created. Um, and I think, you know, the one thing that we can really learn from California is this for, to my, in my opinion, the, the cap and trade debacle, <laughs> which I mean, people will look, they will, you will find many more people on the side of supporting it. Um, and a lot of the big enviros supported it too, right. When it passed. Um, and I'm on the board of the center on race, poverty, environment, which actually sued to stop cap and trade from being implemented. And they got really a lot of backlash and a lot of, you know, they were banned from some funding organizations, all of that. But it is again, true that the EJ communities were like, we just don't see how this will help us. And fast forward several years, it has not helped them. Right. So like if we think about what really reduces carbon emissions and what is good for frontline communities, those two things are the same. Right. Massive investments in climate jobs both reduces emissions and also ensures that there are good quality jobs for people to take. Um, And I think those are the guiding principles that we have to really follow as we go into this post-COVID recovery era. Thank you. Um, That's really helpful. I want to maybe move, not maybe necessarily move away from California, but but broaden a bit geographically. I know you've done work, obviously, in New York uh, State, and we'll get into that a bit more in a minute. And you've done work in Wyoming, and you've done a lot of work uh, just sort of across the country with um, labor unions and unionized workers. You know, when you think um, at the level of, of workers who've been working in the fossil fuel industry, you know, in particular, obviously, as you mentioned before, it's an industry where if you don't have a you know, necessarily a college education, you can still make a good living. But I think there are other reasons that people like this kind of work. And I'm curious, have you seen sort of like broader cultural barriers around leaving the fossil fuel industry? Have people become just really attached to the familiarity of it? Is it about the pay? I mean, what is it? um, What do you see as kind of reasons why people might be reluctant to let go of that industry and try something different? Um, You know, I think it's a couple of factors. There's definitely a cultural issue, right? And there's been a lot of research done by sociologists that show the cultural attachment to coal, which was driven largely by coal companies, right? Like tying identity in West Virginia to coal as like masculine and like, you know, coal miner, there's like this image. And that's, you know, in comparison to like the sissy feminized environmentalist. Um, and a lot of that was like funded by coal companies. And, you know, when, when you talk to folks in Wyoming, I feel like what's the alternative, right? That's what I kept hearing when I was in the Powder River Basin. And someone even said like, what company would move to Gillette, Wyoming, which fair. Um, but so in some sense, it makes sense to them that you would mine coal or oil and gas because those reserves are there. Um, and they have yet to see an industry come in that provides the same kind of stability and the same kind of, you know, benefits. 40% of Wyoming state budget comes from coal mining, revenues from coal mining. So what is the industry that will replace that? So while I think that there is, you know, some of this cultural attachment, you know, the other research has been done that shows like places in Illinois, for instance, that are coal, coal places, they have an attachment to coal, but then if you have, if you introduce the idea of renewable energy with these just transition provisions, they are more open to it. 
So I don't necessarily think that it's immovable or something that is, you know, feeds into this culture where there's a little bit of that. And of course, these areas are more conservative and more Republican and all of that. But I honestly think it's that what is what are we transitioning into, right? Like show where are the receipts for the job creation? Um, and that just hasn't really manifested. So the cultural stuff is for sure there. But I also think a lot of it is that you can't ask someone to leave a really well-paying job and to go into some uncertainty, right? Like I just think people, if they don't, if they can't feed their families, they just don't care about climate change. And not because they're jerks or because they don't care about the climate, but like the immediate materiality of their condition is is something that they need to address. So to me, the solution is you just, we just, you know, public sector approach millions of green jobs that are good paying. And then that I think leads the transition. Yeah, I mean, not to bring our our friend Karl Marx on as like a fourth guest here, but it does um, for the number. It does sound from what you're saying, and it seems reasonable to me that it's it's really the economy is going to trump the cultural question. But the problem is, like you were saying earlier, that um, the first round of green jobs promise after the during and after the Great Recession didn't pan out, and so maybe that ends up fueling a level of distrust um, that can get expressed in a lot of ways. But at the end of the day, rules sort of boils down to, you know, has there been an economic alternative that's attractive enough on offer or or not? And if it hasn't been before, then why would you expect there to be one uh, now? Exactly. I mean, if you think about underground coal mining, it's really dangerous. So um, you when you talk to coal miners, like a lot of them don't want their children to be coal miners, right? But what is the alternative? Um, and it can't be some credit card processing center that pays their workers $7 an hour, right? Or some call center. Um, which is what they're seeing. So I, 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 yes, I think that there is a cultural element, but I really think fundamentally it's that, you know, it, Wyoming is another great example, right? There's a lot of actually respect for outdoors and conservation, even though they are so conservative. So it's not as if they want to mine the whole state and like open it up and all of that, but what's the alternative? And I just think that we don't, until that question is answered, and, you know, we do have this legacy of this, like, broad promise for millions of green jobs. And, you know, when you talk to union folks, they're like, yeah, 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 millions of green, millions, trillions of green jobs. Um, and it is kind of true, right? Like, that's the rhetoric of, like, yeah, this investment will create millions and trillions of green jobs. And it's like, yeah, but where? Where where are our receipts? Yeah, and I, I feel like maybe you were starting to get at this, but the even sort of uh, grosser parody of that is like the trope of, of we're going to train coal miners to be coders and yes. uh, you know, <laughs> to go, uh, I don't know, to start apps or something. Um, but I, I mean, I think that uh, some, something you were getting at is like um, that it's not, it's, it's not just the, the folks and um, who, who work in the mines or on drill sites who are the ones affected there. I mean, whole regional economies are built up around, um, around, uh, these, these extractive industries in, in different places. Um, and so <laughs> the number of, of, of jobs and, and livelihoods really bound up is, um, is so much larger even than just looking at who, you know, who's actually working for, for the coal company. So, you know, to, to kind of flush it out, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, in your most, uh, optimistic moments, how would you see a, a green jobs agenda in its in its really fullest sense, sort of addressing the the, the full scope of how big the a transition needs to be? You know how how would you see a, a green jobs agenda helping build, um, you know the the kind of of 
multiracial coalition needed to to really um, you know make the case for itself, honestly, as it as it goes along, and and to um, really you know feel this transition for for the length of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think there is a an example of Tonawanda, which is in western New York. Uh, and they had a coal-fired power plant in Huntley, New York, that was shutting down. Um, and the revenue from that coal plant f- uh, funded the school system. So the teachers, the teachers union, I think the steelworkers, um, and a couple of other unions came together with environmental groups to to kind of figure out a transition plan for what they were going to do post the coal-fired power plant. Um, and they ended up getting some gap funding from the state and then did a visioning process called, uh, I think it's called Growing Our Future, um, and basically looked at what are our strengths, what are, you know, what kind of workforce do we want to attract, what kind of future do we want to see. Um, and I think those kind of visioning processes, while it sounds small, kind of need to drive what's happening for us to have a really true just transition. So, you know, folks have done something similar in Appalachia, and they ask people like what, you know, if you could reimagine your community in five years or 10 years, what would it look like? And almost none of them mentioned, yeah, we'd be continuing to mine coal. Um, So I think if we, you know, the work that we've been doing on Just Transition is like, we, we have a framework for four pillars of Just Transition. So these are some of the things that could guide uh, economy-wide Just Transition. So strong governmental support, a diverse coalition, dedicated funding streams, and economic diversification. I think if you didn't policies that really embraced and advanced those four pillars, we would have a pretty good transition. Um, you know, we could think about generic ideas like, of course, retrofitting everything would be great. Um, you know, moving from a moving to a fix it first mandate for infrastructure, investing in infrastructure, um, mass build out of low carbon housing, zero carbon housing, um, and then or you know, solar and wind mass development of that as well. I think all of those things are needed. But what I would come back to is this community-led planning vision um, that I really think that, you know, the tenants of the EJ community are that communities speak for themselves. And I think that's equally true for fossil fuel regions. Like, what what do they envision for their future? And to your point, like, they're not going to be coders. And I honestly think the, what the world does not need is more tech. Um, so think about what are the strengths of the region? And then how, what does it look like 10 years from now? I, I think it's also a really powerful way for communities to be engaged in in a positive vision, right? Like, what do you want your community to look like? And it sounds like a really simple thing, but it's, I think, really moving and powerful and by, has a lot of political buy-in that then makes implementing those policies a lot easier. Let's dig in a bit on this envisioning. I think we want to kind of close out with a couple of questions on on exactly this theme. Um so you co-wrote, uh, along with Laura Skinner, this great report called Reversing Inequality, Combating Climate Change, a Climate Jobs Program for New York State. And that was with the Worker Institute at Cornell. And I'd love to hear from you some of the ideas that you and Laura and perhaps others you were in dialogue with found most exciting as a way to think about what a New York state looks like that's had kind of massive climate investment. I mean, I will say one of the most surprising things to me that I loved was the idea of bus rapid transit uh, in upstate New York, um, as, lo- as well as obviously um, New York City. But you know, other ideas or, th- or that idea that you all thought really kind of exemplify what a transformed you know state looks like, um, building on a foundation of green jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to be honest, we kind of looked at what was 
happening and what could be happening, right? So a lot of our recommendations are things that the state was already doing that we just amped up. So for instance, they I think they had their um, electricity reduction target in public buildings at 20%, we just doubled it. <laughs> um, and thankfully, it was something that Cuomo picked up. So I think, um, you know, Lara's a big transit person, so she really is a big advocate of bus rapid transit. And the other thing that we realized was how many public state buildings there were across the state, if you considered, if you take into consideration, which I think a lot of people forget, like SUNY and CUNY. Um, and in California, that would be true too, right? The UC system and the Cal State system, all of those are public buildings. So when you think about retrofitting and putting solar on public buildings, then the landscape just really expands out. Um, the other uh, recommendation that we had that I, I think is a, another good model is solar on public schools because schools are often a hub uh, in communities. So it, it engages communities and also is a very visible project. So when you have solar panels on public schools, then you can teach kids about sustainability and all of that. Um, and also it's a way to get community buy-in. Um, and the third thing I would say is New York has a public utility, NIPA. Um, and the idea then about driving renewable energy development through the public sector. Um, those are the three things that I think we were really excited about. I mean, they're all exciting, but those are the three that I would highlight. Yeah. And I mean, something that um, stood out just watching, watching the the sort of fight for all those policies um, play out in New York state is, is there was, you know, this, this really pretty exciting, exciting coalition that, that got built around it. And um, it seems like, I mean, Certainly, in the policies you were mentioning, and in other parts of the program, um, people could really, you know, see see themselves in, um, and and sort of tangible improvements in in what um, what was coming out of, of Albany. Um, so, you know, I'm I'm wondering, you know, you've written about the sort of positive lessons to be learned from uh, kind of intensive consultations and coalition building um, on route to you know good clean jobs legislation. So, what? What's gone well in New York on that front, and you know what are the what are the kind of lessons to draw out um, for folks who you know might be uh, wanting to do something something similar in in other states and even improve on improve on that. Um, so just to clarify, you know, there's two parallel efforts. One is New York Renews, which I think is the really exciting diverse coalition that you're thinking of that just had a huge win with the Climate Protection Act, um, and then our effort, which is Climate Jobs New York. Um, and the distinction is that Climate Jobs New York is led entirely by the labor movement. Um, and we have, uh, it has also led to the creation of a national climate jobs resource center, which has kind of started climate jobs programs in other states. Um, and I think what's exciting about that is that, um, I think you need both, right? I think it's like a let a a thousand flowers bloom. Um, the, the labor movement, uh, climate jobs program led by labor, I think is particularly important because one, the historical tension between jobs versus the environment. And two, because it is really then, you know, working folks that are envisioning their their idea for a climate. Um, and it is an organizing tool that can be used amongst the labor movement. Um, and, you know, there are disadvantages, of course, to just having a labor-focused uh, effort. But I think what Climate Jobs and New York Renew shows is that you can have both that are complementary. Um, and so I think, you know, if we think about lessons that are learned, one is that like things just take time and they need to take time. So our climate jobs report, uh, it, it was 18 months of organizing. Um, you know, we don't have that much time to be honest, to really act um, on climate. So I think that there is that tension, but I think 
you know, if you think about a, a labor-led movement, there's already trust there, so that helps with the helps you know develop a vision more quickly. Um, I think another lesson to be learned is, uh, you know, we really talk about ambition um, in in policy proposals, and I think we the, what I think is wonderful about the Green New Deal is that it is a really ambitious climate proposal. Like finally, right? It's like finally we're getting away from like nationwide cap and trade and all of that. Um, and the third I would say is that, uh, you know, this really, and maybe this speaks to our current moment, is that this inter- integration of social and economic concerns and climate concerns does not slow movement on climate, right? It just enhances it and makes it more rich. And um, and then I just don't think there's any way forward on climate without integrating social and economic concerns. And that's really what you see with these new, with New York Renews and climate jobs, right? Is like the intersection of race, environment, and climate. No, sorry, race, economy, and climate. Um, and I think there's no way forward unless the climate movement is really, truly a justice movement. Thanks. I think that's that's exactly right. And so I guess you know maybe to close us out, the last thing that I would ask you about is you know building on that insight when you look at everything that's happening right now. Um, this huge amount of police violence on the one hand, but on the other, this like massive uprising and a a new chance to just talk about like how do we build a safer future and and you know how do we get started? You know what? It we can't predict the future, but if do you have a sense of the kinds of things you hope the climate movement will be talking about in the next one, two, three weeks as it you know works its way towards um towards playing a, a, a decent and helpful role in this uprising? Uh, you know, I think actually now is a time for us to listen. Um, I really appreciated the statements from 350 and Sierra Club uh, and Greenpeace about, you know, the importance of racial justice and I really recognizing the moment that we're in. Um, you know, there's nothing to me more jarring than when you're scrolling through Twitter and it's like all this violence against protesters, you know, all of this police state sanctioned murder. And then you see something about like some dude has a take on renewable versus nuclear. Like now is not the time. (laughs) Um, So honestly, for the next week or two, I think we should just listen. Great. That seems like a good, a good note to to end on. Um, Well, thank you so much for, for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. That was Mijin Cha, an assistant professor in the Department of Urban and Environmental Policy at Occidental College. She's a fellow at Cornell University's Worker Institute and a senior fellow at Data for Progress, as well as a board member at the Center on Race, Poverty, and the Environment, and Good for Girls and Welcome Ideas. You've been listening to Hot and Bothered, a climate podcast in the time of coronavirus. That's it for this episode. We're hosted by Descent Magazine and produced by Colin Kinnebra. If you like what you've been hearing, help us spread the word and feel free to tweet at us at hot bothered climate. That's hashtag hot bothered climate. And if you are able to, after contributing to bail funds and black led organizing, uh, pitch in to cover our cost of production. We're at patreon.com slash hot bothered climate. So until next time, stay hot, stay bothered, and let's take care of each other.